Father, thank you for your word and the way that it really and truly shows us who you are. Um, I pray that you'd be with us tonight, that you would walk with us uh, through this passage of scripture, that we would see uh, the way that your son is so humble and that he is so gentle and he is so kind um, to wash people's feet, to care for people in um, the places in which they are most afraid, the way in which we're most uh, callous towards you. Lord, help us uh, to see him as kind. Help us to see him as loving and true. God, be with us tonight as your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Cool. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this experience before uh, where someone uh, somehow knows something about you and gets you on a level that you didn't think that they could get you and you're like, no, 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 this isn't me, and they totally nail you. I had this happen uh, this last weekend with Netflix. <laughs> My best friend. <laughs> After Katie, of course, you know, because <laughs> we're married. <laughs> uh, whatever algorithm they're typing in for Simon Stokes, they are just like drilling me hard. <laughs> because I was kind of flipping through, uh, you know, suggestions for you, and I was looking through, and I was like, none of these, none of these, none of these, none of these. And I click on one, I was like, definitely not this one. I read it, I was like, definitely this one. <laughs> Because it was a documentary about a cult, <laughs> which was totally fascinating to me. Um, so it's, it's this documentary about this cult in California. And what's so interesting about it is the guy that's making the documentary had actually been a part of this cult for like 20 years. And he not just been a part of the cult, but he was the video guy for the cult. So he has all of this like intimate videos of the cult doing their like cult things. And... Not only that, but as he's interviewing people who'd been part of this cult, like, he knows them, and as he's talking to them on camera, like, they're getting really, really, really raw with him. And he kind of walks you through, like, what their whole experience had like, had been like. And they were saying things that as they'd gone into the cult, they'd said things like, you know, I'd always been sure that there was more to life than just what I see, and I really wanted to know what that was. Or if I start off wanting to be a scientist, and then I wanted to be an artist. But really, those were just two sides of the same coin. Because really, I just wanted to know what was the secret behind the truth and the beauty of the world. And they meet a guy, and he was nice, and he was fun, and he was playful, and he seems very wise. And he promises through a very strict regimen of diet and meditation, and just kind of the knowledge that he has kind of inherited from some secret master that you can't meet. Uh, that he's going to let them in to like, the reality behind that curtain. And he builds this incredible community of people who genuinely love each other and sincerely believe his teaching. And he's telling them things like, if you follow me, I can give you a direct experience with God. And they believe him. And they know it's a little weird, but they tell themselves things like, if we're in a cult, at least it's one of the good ones. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Which foreshadowing, <laughs> you're in a cult. <laughs> there are no good ones. <laughs> and at first, it is a legitimately great experience for these people. They're experiencing community, friendships like they never had and they'd always wanted. They love each other. They love their leader. And then, inevitably, as these things go, it takes a dark turn. And he has them do things for him, like build a theater with their own like sweat and blood and practice ballet in it for an entire year put together all the, co- all the costumes, all the scenery, and they perform this ballet one time to an audience of no one. It's just them. 
or he has a team of three to four people following around everywhere and are there, who are his 24-7 personal masseuses. Or on a whim, he has them construct an aviary complete with peacocks and a baby wallaby. I know, it's beautiful. Uh, he tells a woman uh, to tell the entire group that she's been diagnosed with cancer when she hasn't so that he can pretend to heal her. And then serious accusations of abuse come out. And more and more people start to realize this really isn't about him giving us a religious experience anymore or showing us what's real or what's true. It's now really about us being his personal slaves. And it ends with people leaving the cult in disgust and the former members just in tears. They had asked great questions. They'd found an incredible community with good friends. They sincerely believed that this person that they were basing their life on was right. And the guy had been saying things to them like, believe in me, I'm going to reveal God to you. Trust me, build your life around me, I will satisfy your soul. Come, be a part of this incredible community. Meet people that will love you and build a meaningful, harmonious life together. And it was all a sham. And I tell that story for this reason. That for some of you, when you open up the Gospels, or as we've opened up the Gospels together this semester, and you look at the life of Jesus... And you see him saying things like, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. Or I'm the bread of life that came down from heaven. Or making claims that no one but God could make, like to forgive sins. To one day return from heaven and judge the living and the dead. That all these prophecies in the Old Testament are really pointing to him when he's born hundreds of years after they were made. And you can hear that and wonder, what is the difference between what Jesus is saying and what a guy in a cult would say? I mean, as C.S. Lewis famously said, based on his claims, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And lots of people have claimed to be God, or had special knowledge of who God is, and have been using it to manipulate or control people. And if that's Jesus, then he's a terrible person. Lots of other people have made the same sort of claims and turned out to be crazy. And if that's Jesus, he's a really sad person. But if the Gospels are true, and just kind of bullet pointing this for you, I think they are. <laughs> I know, I'm raising the stakes here at the start. <laughs> then he is who he said that he is. And there has to be some objective reality to back that up. And we talked about that a few weeks ago uh, here, that either Jesus rose from the dead and he actually did the things that he said, or he did not. And if you want to, we, have a, we actually have a podcast to record my sermons and put them online. If you want, you can go online and listen to those. Or if you want, you can talk to me afterwards. I'm free to talk. But if he's God in the flesh, too, there's more than just this objective reality, but there's a subjective experience of what is it like to be with him? What does he reveal about God's character? What does Jesus show us about what the experience of actually being with God is like? And what does he want us to do? Like, is this a power play? Is this a way for someone to control me, manipulate me? Because for some of you, the reality is that you've had people in power in your life use that power in terrible ways and hurt you. And even if you haven't, then you know just by reading the news that sometimes power is used for as much harm as good. And we're just deeply cynical about power, giving ourselves over to power. But Jesus, I think, and I think the Gospels are showing this too, is the ultimate power in the world. And he shows us really and truly how that power is to be used. So what I want to pose to you tonight is this, is that Jesus uses his power in a way that gives life rather than harms it. And he calls us to do the same thing. So tonight I have two points, just two quick points. 
One, how does Jesus use His power? And two, how are we to use our power? How does Jesus actually use His power, and how are we to use our power? So one, how does Jesus use His power? Look at verse 1 here. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, to depart of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Y'all, the Gospels claim that Jesus is God, and I know that everyone here believes that, that's okay. I'm glad that you're here with us if you don't, and you don't yet believe it. But that's what the Gospels say, and that's what I believe. And that even though the people around him are not always aware of his divinity, it is something that he's aware of. And yet as he comes to his hour, the reality of his divinity is being held like a mirror up to his face. It's been clear before, but it's abundantly crystal clear now. And what is that hour about? That he is about to suffer the worst death in the history of the world. Like not just physical, emotional, psychological pain, but if the Gospels are to be believed, then the wrath of God is going to fall on him like an atom bomb. When you and I have some big thing hanging over our head, like a big test, a paper, a project, an interview for a job or an internship, maybe a date, uh, maybe a date, um, <laughs> that is, that's all we can think of, right? Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How will I come across? Pastorally, for me, the worst 15 minutes of the week are 7.45 to 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights. Because all I can think about is me. I've got this thing hanging over my head. But what do you see about Jesus as he comes to his hour? That he's there and he's pouring out his heart to these guys who he knows are about to betray him. He's comforting them so they aren't afraid. He's pouring love into their laps. And as he does, he's showing them what? Exactly who God is and how he uses his power. John 14, in the very next chapter of this gospel, Jesus is talking. He says, you know, I'm about to go away and you know the way to go. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know. Like, how can we go? And Jesus looks at him and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you can almost picture the apostles saying, like, have you seen God? Like, when I went on that falafel run, was there some God sighting that I missed out on? Because I'm not sure that I've seen it. Falafel, it's a Middle Eastern food. Try it. And another, another apostle named Philip kind of chimes in and he says, show us the Father and that would be enough. Like, just let us see who God is and that would be enough. Jesus' response is unbelievable. Have I been with you all this time and you don't know who I am, Philip? If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That when you see Jesus talking, thinking, feeling, acting, you are not just seeing the most obedient person ever, or the most humble person ever, or the most sacrificial person ever. You are seeing the very character and nature of the living God. Alright, back to this. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Okay, as Jesus is feeling most godlike, what does he do? How does he flex his God muscles? Because he does flex them. This is one of the many moments in the Gospels where if your demand on God is that God has to feel like you feel, think like you think, think act like you act, then Christianity is really going to challenge you. For all the right reasons, it challenges our expectations of who God is, how he acts, and how he feels. Because when we come to our hour, the moment of greatest pain, 
of confusion, of challenge. None of us are thinking about how can we comfort other people. We're thinking about how can we receive comfort or have someone make sense of this confusion. But as Jesus approaches his hour, he bends over backwards for these guys. It says, He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, for those of us who grew up with this stuff, we can think, yeah, of course he's doing this. It's Jesus. It's his deal. But imagine you're in that room and you have no idea this is about to happen. I mean, I don't care how close you are with your friends. It would make us a little squeamish to eat Christmas dinner with someone. And at the end of the meal, they stand up, strip down to their underwear and say, well, here I am to wash your feet. (laughs) And feet in our culture aren't even that big of a deal. Here, they are the most repulsive part of a person that you can talk about. Like, there's no record in ancient history of any leader, Gentile or Jew, doing this for the people below them. This is an act that Jews didn't let other Jews do for them. They had to get their Gentile servants because it was icky. The Gospels claim to be eyewitness testimony, and like all other testimony, it has to be believed. And why shouldn't it hear? Because no one back in the day would make this thing up. That the sharpest guy in the room, the person that strangers from out of a crowd are coming up to and saying, I think you should be the person in charge of us. I'm pretty sure you turn things around and make us great again. That this is the guy who's stripping down and washing the people, the feet of the people around him. And what happens? I mean, it freaks him out. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And then classic over-the-top Peter, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Like, you'll never wash my feet. Ah, wash all of me. (laughs) This is so us. Like, Jesus approaches us. We push him back. Like, this is everybody. Wash my head. Wash my hands. Wash the stuff that I want to look good and acceptable. The things I'm okay talking about, looking at, showing other people. Wash those things. But Jesus, stay in your Bible stories. Show me some things I can do to be a nicer person. Put your finger on the big injustices in the world that I already don't like. Forgive me for these amorphous, generic sins like pride or materialism. But Jesus, do not wash the weariest, most calloused, dirtiest, most problematic part of me that I would never let someone else touch. Don't get to the specifics. Do not touch that memory. Do not touch that old hurt. Don't touch that thing I love but which I know is wrong and I also hate. Don't look behind the mask that I wear to show people that everything is good when inside I'm dying. Let me keep telling myself that I like being alone. This is just who I am. Don't make me deal with the reality that really I'm afraid to let people in. Don't wash me there. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. What is Jesus showing us about God? That the first thing that we need from God is not a mentor or a coach or a teacher or a good example, though He is those things. That the first thing that we need from Him is to be washed. And only He can do that. And He will go to embarrassing lengths to wash us. Because you know what this is a picture of, don't you? That he eats this Passover meal, he strips down his underwear, he washes his disciples' feet. What is he showing them? What does he want us to see? The cross. 
that all of his wisdom, all of his power, all of his leadership abilities, a life devoted entirely to loving God and his neighbors, are so that he can come to this hour and be stripped naked. That he will leave the bowl of water in that room so that he can take up a cross in that street and be crucified in a garbage dump that doubles as a cemetery. The picture here is he's washing feet with water. The reality here is that he will wash their souls with his blood. And if that sounds extreme and shocking and humiliating, both for the one who does the washing and the person who must be washed, it is because it is. It's so shocking that people wrote it down and died to tell other people about it. That no one is so good they don't need this. No one is too bad they can't receive it if they ask. It is for everyone. Think about what this says about how Jesus uses his power. That it's all so that we can be washed. That this is the thing we need most. And think about what it shows about his character, his wisdom, his compassion, his kindness for us. I think about it like this. I have, uh, I'm married into a cousin um, who's like five years old. Her name is Keely Claire. She's super sweet and super kind. And I know that she's those things because she has this baby doll. Or it used to be a baby doll. Now it's just called Bebe. And <laughs> Bebe, at some point in its lifetime, had a body and arms and legs and clothes, I'm assuming. It had a full head of hair. Now Bebe like has like nasty, like tight, like gold dreadlocks and like in patches. It's not even like a full set. Uh, she has one eye that's like kind of open and the other it's like this. And like, <laughs> I mean, it is horrific. And I mean that in every sense of the word. <laughs> I mean, Bebe is scary looking, y'all. But I know that Keely Claire is kind and sweet because Bebe does not leave her side. Like, she kisses Bebe. She eats with Bebe. She sleeps with Bebe. When Uncle Simon comes to visit, he has to kiss Bebe <laughs> and eat with Bebe. Like, that baby doll is dearly beloved, not because of anything that's in it, but because of the little girl that loves it. And you need to know that we are the same, that we are dearly beloved by God and by Jesus, not because of anything that's in us, because of everything that's in Him. All of His love, His compassion, His kindness are for His people. And we have to put up on a front. We just have to be washed. And we are with Him. We can have a bad day and go through that and wonder, you know, does God really like me? Or is He up in the sky like zapping me? But when you feel that way, look at stuff like this. That if Jesus is willing to go to the bottom to wash the dirtiest, darkest, most problematic part of us, then he must not just like us. He must really love us. If that's how he uses his power, and he's just not just in charge, he must be safe too. He must be a very safe, kind person. Okay, if that's how he uses his power, then what does it mean for us if we've been washed? How are we to use our power? Look at verse 12 here. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. 
For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Y'all, here's a basic principle for you as you read the Gospels. That Jesus, who is the Son, reveals the Father. That everything that He is, that He says, that He does, is God revealing Himself to us. His love, His truth. The honesty to tell us that we need washing, along with the reality of making it so. And what does He say to His disciples? What I've done to you, do to one another. If I've washed you, taught you, listened to you, loved you, and you understand this, then do the same thing to one another. That it is like there's a fountain of love at the top of the universe where the Father pours Himself out into the Son, the Son pours Himself out into His people, and then His people pour themselves out into one another and the world. That Jesus reveals God, the church reveals Jesus. Jesus does that work perfectly, His people do not. But Because how does this play out practically? Here and now with one another, what might this look like to wash one another's feet? To sit with one another under this cascade of love falling from heaven. I think about it like this. Think about community groups and fresh groups. Have you ever wondered what keeps us from sitting in a room with other people and instead of listening to what other people think about a scripture and then go to a study with them and then eat dinner with them, like what keeps us from doing that? What drives that sense that, you know, I would lead a Bible study, I would lead a community group, but I would never just be a participant in one. Personally, on me, I don't, I don't have, know what's going on in y'all's head, but personally, what's kept me out of these sorts of things is my pride. And I said that to my shame. The felt sense that, you know, I'm just too important to listen to these people talk. I'm too busy. I'm juggling too many things to listen to them and try to make sense of kind of the ho-hum stuff going on in their life. It's just not worth my time. I've got other things to do. And we might never say that out loud or express that in writing. But what happens when, we're, when we don't do that? We're not washing one another's feet. I'm not washing anyone. No one is washing me. Like, yes, you're clean through Jesus. But how do you get this regular experience of the washing that's already yours through Him? By listening to one another, praying with one another, studying the Bible together. When you're doing those things, you're not just in a Bible study, but you're rejoicing with those who rejoice. You're weeping with those who weep. You're bearing one another's burdens. You're washing one another with the love that's poured down from us from Jesus. You're blessing and being blessed by God and His people. And if you understand what Jesus has done, then you need to wash people who you think are more boring than you, who you think are not as smart as you, who you don't think are as attractive as you are, who don't listen to as cool a music as you do, or know as many pop cultural references as you do. And you need those other people to wash you too. Because the reality is, y'all have so much to offer to one another. Like, there's an embarrassment of riches in here. Like, you all have so many gifts, so much compassion, so much kindness to give to one another. Like, what's holding that back? Why can't we do that for one another? Look, my hope for y'all is that you would go from here to serve UNC and Charlotte, and America, and the world. But if you can't do that here with one another, how can you do that out there for people you don't even know? Like, if you know these things, 
Blessed are you, do, are you if you do them. You know, RUF is dirty people who've gotten washed and inviting other people to the only place where you can get clean, to Jesus. But washing and being washed by one another through Christ and doing that together, that's just what the Christian life is. And we need this story and to live in this story together to know God, to know one another, and to feel as clean as we are in the gospel. We need this story and we need to tell this story to one another and to live in it and to wash one another with it. And so I want to end with this. There was uh, a guy who passed away probably four or five years ago. His name was Maurice Sendak. You probably don't know his name, but he was the guy who wrote and illustrated the kids' book Where the Wild Things Are. Like, did you grow up with that? Like, uh, the wild rompus and all that sort of stuff with Max. Um, when he passed away, there was a lot of stories that came out about him. And one of the ones was one that he told himself. And he says this. He said, once a little boy sent me a charming card with a little drawing on it. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily. But this one I lingered over. I sent him a card. I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. And I wrote, dear Jim, I loved your card. Simple as that. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much that he ate it. <laughs> that, to me, was one of the highest compliments I've ever received. It's true. <laughs> he didn't care that it was an original Mari Sendak drawing or anything. He saw it. He loved it. He ate it. <laughs> Do you know what Jesus is? Jesus is God drawing us a picture of himself and what it is to be made in his image and then saying, eat this. Take this into yourself. That for people who wonder, what is God like? How would I know him? How do I know this isn't some sort of power play to trick me? That if someone is claiming to be God, surely it has to be something to make me some sort of brainwashed slave or something to just eat up my time. For people like us who wonder those things, what more would you want than the picture that you see in the Gospels? A God that is compassionate and kind and strips himself naked to wash us and make us clean. Here you have a God who takes all of his wisdom and his power to set us free from shame. So he could love us and set you free. And that is no cost to you. That is every cost to himself. And y'all, that is not the yoke of slavery. That is like sails on a ship that was going nowhere. It is like wings on a bird that couldn't fly. It is the thing you need most to be most freely you. So take him into your innermost self. Into your thoughts about who you are. Into your guilt. Into your shame. Into your deepest longings about what you want for the world. Your deepest hopes for Charlotte. For UNC. For America. And be washed in His love. And then wash the people around you with whatever love you've got to give. And as always, that's my invitation to you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You wash people like us. That You make us clean through Your work on the cross. That's something that is part of You and in Your character. And that's not anything in us. Lord, help us to see You as sufficient and rich. Help us to see ourselves as poor and insufficient. And Lord, let us turn from everything good, everything bad in ourselves, and turn to you, resting in your joy, your welcome. 
Lord, your love. In your name we pray. Amen.